uh, reading this evening is on page 1170, and that's Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 to chapter 4, verse 7. That's page 1170, Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 to chapter 4, verse 7. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, He's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is God's word. Thank you, Rachel, for reading. It'll be really helpful if you keep Galatians chapter 3 and 4 open. Um, we're going to be doing a bit of jumping around in the verses this evening, um, so it'll be really helpful to keep it open. Um, and I'll try and point us um, to where we are at each point um, in the sermon. It's a wonderful passage. Um, let's pray um, as we begin together. So you are no longer a slave, but... God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand more and more just the magnitude of that truth this evening as we look at your words, and that therefore we would have confidence that we're part of the family. Amen. In October last year, a woman in the States hit the headlines and sparked outrage on social media after trying to convince her husband to give less of his inheritance to two of their kids on the basis that they were adopted. Her husband had received some money after his own mother had died and was planning to split it evenly between the three children to give them a college education, but his wife said she would feel happier if their biological son received more 
than the two children they had adopted. It's desperately sad, isn't it? It's a heartbreaking story. And whilst we can't know for certain how the children felt, I guess one of the overriding feelings would have been that of insecurity. Am I really loved? Am I really part of the family? This term, in our evening services, we've been looking through Galatians, and a couple of weeks ago, Andrew introduced us to the idea of imposter syndrome. Remember, these Galatians have put their faith in Jesus, but now a group of Judaizers have turned up, and they are teaching that if these Christians really want to be in the inner circle, if they really want to be part of God's people, if they really want to be part of God's family, well, they must become Jewish. Faith plus circumcision, faith plus the food laws, faith plus the festivals. And so over the past couple of weeks, Paul has argued that our standing before God is not about the law, rather it is about faith. Our standing before God is not about our performance, but rather his promise. And yet I guess the niggling question might have still been there in the back of the heads. Am I really part of the family? Or is it just those Jews over there? And yet it's just not the Galatians back then, is it? We might feel it too. It probably isn't for the same reasons as the Galatians, but I take it there might be all sorts of reasons as to why we might feel that we don't fully belong to God's family. Maybe we have a different cultural background to others at church. Maybe we have a different church background to others here. Maybe we don't feel as gifted or as useful as others here. Maybe it's because we're newer to Christian things. And so maybe we think, well, I must become like them in order to be really part of the family. Well, if that's the case, then these tonight's verses are really going to help us. As Paul shows us exactly who we are and exactly what we have in the gospel, two headings. And the first is that before Christ, we were slaves under the law. Before Christ, we were slaves under the law. Verse 23, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. In these verses, Paul is giving us an overview of salvation history, and he's saying that before Jesus came, the Jewish people were held in custody under the law. Now, last week we saw that one of the functions of the law is to show our need for the promise. As we look at the law, it reveals my sin and therefore shows me that I need Christ. Remember, the teaching of the Bible is not, here it is, go and pull your socks up and try harder. It is, here it is, you can't do it and you don't do it, let's go to Jesus. And the same point is being made again, the law locks us up. It confines us, it shows us that we are in prison, so that we see we need a rescue. But as well as holding us in custody, the law also acts as a guardian. That word guardian um, was used to describe a person, probably a slave, who supervised the children 
on behalf of the parents. They were to make sure that the children followed the rules. They were to make sure that they went to school and ate the food and went to bed on time. And Paul says that is what the law does. The law is like a strict nanny given in order to supervise Israel in its childhoods. It's the point Paul continues to make in verse 1 of chapter 4. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So a father has an estate and the two-year-old son is the heir. He is the one who will receive the whole estate. And yet for the moment, because he's a son, because he's underage, because he's two, well, it wouldn't be sensible to give him the estate. He has neither power nor possession. And so he looks no different to those who work on the estate. For the moment, he's under guardians, he's under trustees. He will only receive it when his father says so. I take it the modern-day equivalent would be the parents who sets aside money in the junior ISA. The child will receive the money, that is certain, but not at the moment. They can't access the money or the accounts until they're 16 or 18, whatever it is. And Paul says that that is what it was like for the Jews who lived before Jesus came. That is what it was like for Jews living under the Old Testament law. They were under a guardian. But more than that, Paul says... They were also slaves. Verse 3, so also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. What does that mean? This phrase, the elemental spiritual forces of the world, was used in Paul's day to describe the fundamental components of the universe, the fundamental building blocks of the created order, things like the sun and the moon, things like stars and planets, earth wind and fire. But why does Paul say that the Jews living under the law were in slavery to these things? Well, if we think about it, then much of the Jewish law was governed by these things. The sacrifices, the feasts, the Sabbaths, the Passover, all of these things governed by the calendar, all tied down by the elementary principles. And so therefore the Jews, as they lived under the law, were in slavery, being held, being taught, yes, by the law, but waiting for something else. Before Christ, the Jews were slaves under the law. But you might be thinking, well, why do we need to know this? The answer is because the same is true of Gentiles. That is, the same is true of non-Jews. Now, whenever we're reading the Bible, one thing that we need to be careful of, as we notice, is the pronouns that are being used. And the reason for this is because the pronouns indicate who the author is addressing or who they are talking about. One of the things to notice in these verses is that Paul switches between the pronouns we and you. Did you notice that as Rachel read for us? When he uses the pronoun we, he's talking about the Jews. And when he uses the pronoun you, he's speaking about Gentiles. And so whilst these verses about being slaves under the law are primarily about the Jews, we're also told that it's true of the Gentiles too. We get a hint of it in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave. Notice the you. So you are no longer a slave. But we also get 
hints of it in next week's passage, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, as in before you were a Christian, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Now, of course, before they came to Christ, these Gentiles, well, they weren't exactly in slavery to the Jewish law, were they? And yet, because laws would have been created for them to try and please their own pagan gods, well, you can still say that they're in slavery. They're in slavery to the laws that they're seeking to keep in order to please their gods. And Paul says the same was true of us. Before we were a Christian, we all believe in some sort of gods. And so either ourselves or others have created some sort of laws that help us to please and worship that God. And so we're in slavery. Maybe it was the God of work. And so our slavery shows as we try to keep the law of always working and never resting. The law of always seeking the approval of our bosses. The law of always seeking the next promotion. Maybe it's the God of relationships. And so our slavery showed as we tried to keep the law of always doing what we could to maintain every single friendship. It's, it's slavery because it enslaves us. It, it tires us out. We're tied into it. And we can't stop. We think, well, I've got to do everything I can. God of relationships, the law of doing what we could to make sure people thought highly of us, always thinking, I've got to please others in order to serve that God. Paul says, before Christ, before you accepted him, we were slaves under the law. And yet the wonderful thing is that that is not the case anymore. Last week we saw, didn't we, that in some sense the law was given as a temporary thing. That becomes even clearer. Just look back at verse 23 again. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Do you see the temporariness of it? It's not saying that the law is irrelevant or useless. It doesn't mean that we ignore it. Paul is not arguing against the law as a whole, but rather that in some sense, its role is done. The law was intended to teach Israel and lead Israel until the Messiah came. Before Christ, we were slaves under the law, but now in Christ, we are sons and heirs of the promise. That's the second thing we need to see from these verses. In Christ, we are sons and heirs of the promise. Let's pick it up at verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Remember, the Bible's not multiple different stories, multiple different plans. It's one big plan. When the set time had fully come, 
God sent his son, that is Jesus, is fully divine. Born of a woman, that is Jesus, is fully human. Born under the law, that is Jesus, was born as a Jew to redeem those under the law. Jesus kept the law fully. He lived the perfect life and yet died for lawbreakers in order to redeem them, in order to pay the ransom price so that they might be justified, right, before God, both now and on the day of judgment. And remarkable though that is, it is not the end. Jesus didn't just die to save people and redeem people. He died that they might become family. He died so that they might receive adoption to sonship in order to make them sons. Now you might think, well, it's a bit sexist for Paul to use the word sonship here. The reason he does so is because it is all to do with inheritance. If you look back to verse 5, then you'll notice that there's a little letter B. And so if we go down to the bottom of our Bibles, underneath the text, you'll see the little B and the number 5, and it says this. The Greek word for adoption to sonship is a legal term referring to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. Back then, a daughter wasn't allowed to inherit. And so that meant that if you didn't have a son, what you would do is you would choose one of your male servants and you would adopt them. You would bring them into the family. And at that moment, the servant goes from being a servant to being a son to receiving the financial and legal privileges of being an heir. And so you see, by describing all Jews with faith in Jesus as sons, Paul is being completely radical. He is saying that all of them, not just the men, but all of them with faith in Jesus, male and female, are heirs. And yet it gets even more radical because it's not just for believers from a Jewish background, it is also true of believers. From a Gentile background, verse 26 So in Christ Jesus, you, notice the change in pronoun, you Gentiles are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now it's not saying that everyone in the world is one of God's children. That's what the songs like to teach us, isn't it? But that is not the case. This is a special privilege for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who put their faith in Jesus. They are a child brought into the family. Those who've been converted or baptized into Christ, as Paul says, have clothed themselves with Christ. And so therefore, what happens at salvation? Well, it is not enough to say that I become a Christian, my slate is wiped clean, and I start again. That is not right. No, it is much more. As I become a Christian, my slate is wiped clean and Christ's righteousness is put there. It becomes mine. It's mind-blowing to think about, but as God looks at you, if you're a Christian, he sees Christ's righteousness. He treats me as if he treats his own son. Doesn't that blow you away? 
Our primary identity is not, therefore, that we're male or female or that we're married or single. Our primary identity is not what we do for work, but rather that we are in Christ. And in Christ, we're a son. Nothing we can do will make God love us more than he currently does. Nothing we can do will make God love us less than he currently does. Doesn't that fill your heart with joy? I know it does for me. And yet these verses aren't just about me as an individual Christian. They don't just help us to see ourselves rightly. They help us to view others correctly too. Did you notice the repetition of the word all? Verse 26 again. So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's worth saying that some people have done some very weird things with verse 28. Paul is not literally saying that these people don't exist. Paul is not saying that all Christians are the same. Though some people do so, this verse shouldn't be used in order to try and erase the distinctions in roles that we read about elsewhere in the Bible. Rather, he is making the radical statement that the differences that do exist, well, they make no difference in our standing before God. And therefore, they make no difference, or they should not make any difference, in our standing with one another. See, in the Roman world, there were three big dividers between people, religion, status, and gender, so much so that a Jewish man would wake up every morning and thank God that he wasn't a Gentile, wasn't a slave, and wasn't a woman. Today, I guess there's a whole load of other things that we could add to the list of things that divide people, race, ethnicity, nationality, class, job, relationship, status, plenty of others, but Paul says the gospel smashes through them all. Now, please don't mishear me. We're not saying that our differences don't exist. We're not saying that our differences aren't important. We're not saying that we must become exactly the same person. I mean, that's part of the argument of the letter. Gentiles don't need to become Jewish. But rather that in Christ, these differences don't impact our standing before God because we're all equal. And that means these differences shouldn't impact how we treat one another. We are all children. We are all sons. And yet God doesn't just want us to know this truth. He wants us to feel it in our present experience. Verse 6, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Notice the two sendings, verse 4, God sent his son in order to die, to secure the adoption. Verse 6, God sent his spirit so that we might experience it. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, the Aramaic word that Jesus used when speaking to his father in the garden of Gethsemane, that Gethsemane, that's the word that we can use. In the Old Testament, the Jews wouldn't dare approach God like this, and yet we can. Just like the little toddler that cries out confidently to her father, that is the security, the intimacy that we have with the God of the universe. 
as we cry out, as we pray? Well, that is the Spirit helping us to experience the present relationship that we have with God. But it's not just about the present, it's also about the future. Not just sons, but heirs. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Back in Genesis, we went there last week, we saw that the promises that God made to Abraham, the promise of people, the promise of land, the promise of blessing. And the question ever since Genesis 12 is, well, who gets to inherit that promise? Who are Abraham's children? Who's in God's family? Answer number one, Jesus. We saw that last week, as well as being a promise to Abraham, it's a promise to Jesus. He's the seed who inherits. But answer number two, those who belong to Christ. If we belong to Christ, if we've put our faith in him, then we are Abraham's seeds and therefore heirs according to that promise. For a number of years, a lady called Thelma Howard worked as a housekeeper for a family in the US. And the father of this family was the head of a company and she was paid reasonably well. And each Christmas and birthday, she was given shares in the family business. But she lived a very modest life. After she died, her friends and family gathered round with the lawyer. They read the will. And they found out that her boss was Walt Disney. All those shares every Christmas and birthday. And so she left them with nine and a half million dollars. They didn't know. They didn't know that they were heirs, that they were heirs of a vast fortune. And the point is that we will receive much more than that. It may not look like it now, but consider this. Jesus is going to inherit the entire world, and he's going to share it with you. Isn't that cool? Jesus is going to inherit the entire world, and he's going to share it with you because you're a son and an heir of the promise people, lands, and blessing. It belongs to him. And because it belongs to him, it belongs to us as well. The summary comes in verse 7. If you've fallen asleep or missed anything, this is the takeaway. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also, so God has made you also an heir. These verses apply in all sorts of different ways. Um, more than we can mention this evening. I'm sure there'll be plenty of ways that we can encourage one another from these verses this evening. But as we close, I think it's worth seeing that this is exactly what the Christians in Galatia needed to hear. Remember, some Jewish people had turned up and they were saying, if you really want to be part of God's family, if you really want to become part of God's people, if you really want to be heirs of the promise to Abraham, you need to become Jewish. Remember, the big question over the past three weeks has been, well, who are Abraham's offspring? Who are the heirs? The Jewish people thought it was them. And so the Galatians might have had feelings on the inside, feelings that they don't really belong. And yet they do. They don't need to become part of God's people. They don't need to become part of God's family. They don't need to become heirs. They already are. Because they belong to Christ. 
And that's the truth that we need to remember, isn't it? Whatever our cultural background, whatever our church background, whatever gifts we have or indeed don't have, however long or short a time we've been a Christian, whatever other reasons we may give as to why we don't feel that we do belong, we need to remember that we do. It is very, very clear from these verses, isn't it? If we belong to Christ, we're part of the family. Rejoice in that this week. Remind yourself regularly, I'm part of the family because I belong to Christ. I'm part of the family because I belong to Christ. I'm a son. I'm an heir of the promise. Let's pray together. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Abba Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this more and more as we marvel on these truths with one another now over refreshments and throughout this week. Help us to remember that as we belong to the Son, the Lord Jesus, we are your sons. And therefore, as you look at us, you see him. His future is our future. Help us to marvel at these things, and we pray that they would indeed give us confidence where we don't feel like we belong. Help us to remember that we do because of the Lord Jesus. Help us to remember that we're sons and heirs, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to finish.